Do you want me to talk? I could talk. Do you want me to talk? I'll talk. Jeremy will talk. I'll talk. You're, you're talking now, Jeremy, but I think you want to talk more. Yeah, but I want to wait for them. Oh, they're gone. They're gone forever? Forever and ever. Oh, no. They're gone. Is it true? Are you Coming guys... back in. Oh. Jeremy's oh. desperate to talk. I can talk unless somebody else wants to talk. Um, you have something, Jeremy? I... <laughs> yeah. I just put my headphones on. I didn't hear what you said. Oh, okay. We have our cold open. I guess... <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> I can start it. Yeah, you start it. <laughs> All right, mm-hmm. great. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, curator of the brand new compilation series, Now That's What I Call the Munchies, featuring all your favorite food name bands such as Bread, The Jam, Meat Puppets, Captain Beefheart, Silver Apples, The Strawberry Alarm Clock, The Flying Burrito Brothers, Coke Escovito, Lamb of God, and Chicken Foot. <laughs> Good list. I was like Thank you. picturing the food each name you were saying. It was it was a ride. <laughs> My favorite one being, of course, Lamb of God and Chicken Foot. Where was Peaches and Herb? I mean, Ooh. this is not a complete list. You're gonna have to, <laughs> you gotta have room for all like 45 editions of this box set series. You know, I'm I'm planning way way in the future with this one. I see. I just wanted to say peaches and herb because on our Earth, Wind, and Fire episode, I referred to them as peaches and cream. So <laughs> years later, here I am correcting myself on that. The listeners of that episode have been just scouring every episode since then. Like, when is he gonna admit it? <laughs> <laughs> He knows he was wrong. <laughs> the moment is now. <laughs> oh, I'm co-host Jeremy. And, you know, a nickname's got to start somewhere, right, guys? You just got to... True. You just pick it and you ride it out. And you guys can call me Pepsi Ruggles from now on. <laughs> okay. I might <laughs> hold you to that. All right. What if What if that takes off? How do you feel about that? Real talk. If that honestly takes off, and your name is Pepsi for the rest of time, how does do you sound feel about like a it? rap name. Yeah, I'll I'll pretend it's like an artsy anti corporate statement or something. That's what I'll <laughs> go with. Love it. And I am co host Peter Cook. I didn't ask for Santana Abraxas. I didn't listen to Santana Abraxas. I didn't do anything. <laughs> You're just a simple man. Yeah. Hey, you, you, Sean, you, you got it. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm right there with you. That is the title of the movie, right? I said it out mm-hmm. loud and then immediately second guessed myself. I think it's actually a serious man. A serious man. Ah. But I, I knew well enough that you knew what I was talking about. Simple man is what? Leonard Skinner or some shit? Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> That's what happened. We figured it out. And I am told 
that we have a guest in the house with you there in Philadelphia. Yes, a rare in-person guest. Yeah, this is guest host Ben Johnson. I'm a sommelier and quality control inspector at the Laogan Ma Spicy Chili Crisp Factory. I make sure it's basically just the right amount of spicy. Every single jar of the millions that come out, taste testing each one. Wow, doing the Lord's work. If you know Laogan Ma, then you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Is there a favorite record you like to listen to while you're deep in the tastings? Hmm. I yeah, no. <laughs> Was, My mouth that, is that too. Was, that was blown. a setup to 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 introduce the record we're doing today. Oh shoot! I missed the cue, so to speak. Well, anyway, what record are we going to talk about today? Tonight we're talking about Coke Escovito's debut solo album, debut as a solo artist, simply titled Coke, from 1975. And what song are we going to hear first? We are starting off with. The first song, No One to Depend On. A little side A, track one. Thank you. 
Now that's how you kick off a record. Just coming in hot with that funky ass bass synth in there, the killer backup and lead vocals. That's just setting the tone right. And that bristling guitar. Yeah, the synth mm-hmm. the synths are really the standout of this album for me. That's over and over when there was like synth stuff going on, I was like, Oh yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I love a good nasty synth sound on these funky tracks. What year was this record? 1975. Okay, so this is a few years after the song was originally featured on Santana 3. Yes, I was going to say, are you guys familiar with this song? Are you familiar with the Santana version? I've heard it before. I don't, it's not one of the better known songs, but it was a single, I believe. Yes, and it was a hit. I think it was the biggest hit off that album, if I'm not mistaken. Certainly not as big of a hit as some other Santana tracks, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, interestingly enough, also Vitamin C covered this, like 1999. No. I did not make a point to listen to that version before our recording, but I probably should have. Well, we've we've said it now, so listeners, you can always pause and go listen to Vitamin C's version as well. <laughs> it's out there. But Anytime. Ma- make sure you come back afterwards. <laughs> Don't get off on the vitamin C train. Okay, so you'd heard the Santana song, but did you know anything about Coke Escovito before getting ready for this episode? Not really. You've dropped the name as an artist that you would like to feature a handful of times. I don't know if you've said so on the pod, but certainly in our private conversations, you've talked about Yeah, I have just no way of remembering what albums I've said hmm. out loud on the pod that we should do. It's been so many. Every time I pick recommended albums, part of me is like, I swear I've recommended these before. Like People are going to realize I've only got a short <laughs> list of records. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, you know, eventually a lot of those we will get to featuring. So yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, we can only do one a week. Yeah, it's not enough sometimes. <laughs> uh, no, but yeah, I didn't. I didn't know really anything about Coke, and yeah, just I, I heard this. I was like, "Well, that's a Santana song." Oh, because Coke played with Santana. Yeah, mm-hmm. Coke is just so great. It always picks me up when I'm down. <laughs> oh, wait, what are we talking about now? Uh, the first cocaine <laughs> joke, the inevitable <laughs> cocaine joke when talking about. This interestingly nicknamed musician, and we will get into all of that, the Santana connections, the reason behind his name, etc. throughout the episode. But Jeremy, did you have any, any familiarity? Had you heard the Santana song? Zero. I only listened to Santana output from the 90s myself. <laughs> <laughs> Age is like a fine wine, you know, it just keeps getting better. Yeah. So I think, Sean, so Sean, you and I are the only ones who own this of the four of us. Is that? I, I believe so. Okay. Just because the way we were talking, we were talking before that sounded like that was, I, I have just a little bit of background. I swear, although I couldn't substantiate this, that I learned about him on Oliver Wong's uh, Soul Sides blog, which was probably 17 years ago. But I couldn't find any uh, any mention of it online, and I did ask him, and he's like, "I don't think I don't remember posting on any of these songs." But that was uh, a song from the second album, the "I Wouldn't Change a Thing." So that was I've had that MP3 kicking around for 15 years, and 
the beginning of 2021, a friend of mine found this album in a Philly basement. He was rehabbing houses in South Philly, along with some of Roy Ayers's uh, Uno Melodic early records, which were awesome. But yeah, this eventually made my way, made its way to me in about well, two years ago. So it's just been in your life for a couple years. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, just just two years, and I didn't really have. It was kind of like seeing this this record, uh, the cover come up. I was like, I remember this guy. I have this one random song uh, that I've had for almost fifteen years, and then you know sat down with with this album that we're listening to today, and yeah, the rest is history. So this guy was telling me that I bought this record about three years ago. I don't remember where exactly I got it, but. You know, just flipping through a dollar bin, saw this record cover with the word Coke in a friendly font and this cool looking Latin gentleman on the cover. I was like, well, I got to know what this sounds like. Obviously, I love Latin jazz and Latin funk and Latin disco stuff. So I'm always on the lookout for that kind of thing. And this record pops up in the dollar bins fairly frequently I've seen it many times since then. And uh, I love it. You know, like I said, that first track hooks you. If you're into this kind of music at all, you can't not love it pretty quickly. And for my money, there's really no bad song on this record. There's great songs and good songs. So this is a true dollar bin gem as far as I'm concerned. All right. I can't wait to learn more. All right. Well, (laughs) before we get to the learning and extra songs, do you guys want to play a game? I had a feeling a game was coming. I was hoping a game was coming. A game is coming. So let's see. The last game I subjected you guys to was about how many jazz organists can you name? So keeping with that theme, let's see who can name the most percussionists. Now I'm going to say it can't be a drummer. You know, it's got to be someone who is most notable for doing some kind of percussion thing, hand drums, timbales, etc. So it doesn't strictly have to be jazz no, like auxiliary style, but I, I don't want any like, you know, someone who is only known for playing could be like, well, there's this live show where he played hand drums for a little bit. Like, I don't want any of that bullshit. You mean like someone who regularly performs auxiliary percussion? Yes. Ralph McDonald. Okay. That's one for Peter. Bob Nastanovich from Pavement. All right. That's two for Peter. We have a clear leader. Come on, Jeremy. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's like Ben you want to weigh in uh, well we're going to talk about Tito Puente for sure okay oh dang that's one I could have got if I would have thought of it Noel, Damn. Noel Crombie from Split Ends who we just talked about that's Peter at three Jeremy mm. zero Ben one there's more there's many many more <laughs> <laughs> there are more I can confirm that there are more that's like the credit on the back, I always just ignore. <laughs> I, <laughs> I feel horrible admitting it now. It finally comes out that Jeremy disrespects percussionists. He thinks they're an inferior <laughs> musician. There's another one that I'm, it's the, the name uh, Pablo. Gosh, the name is on the tip. No, wait. Uh, Paulino de Costa. Yes, we featured him. I think many times at this point, it seems like we, he's, his name has come up a lot, it, multiple times. Yeah. yeah. Those that's Bobby Hall. <laughs> I cheated and I looked at my notes for the Joni Mitchell episode. <laughs> <we're about to laughs> <do. laughs> 
All right, Jeremy's in the game. Yes. We have any last minute? Ben, do you have like a list of five you're ready to just spit and take the lead real quick? Uh, unfortunately, I don't. I think we have to give this one to Peter then. All right, I'll take it. All right, your gold star is in the mail, sir. <laughs> I'll keep an eye out. All right, let's get into some more music. How about that? Were there any major ones that were neglected? Or did you? I didn't write down a list of major ones. Paulino da Costa is one of the first one that comes to mind for me. I would say there's a pretty obvious one connected with this episode, and I'm not going to say it yet, uh, but she's related to the featured artist. Oh. Um, we'll just leave it at that, you know, a little more foreshadowing. Keep people on the edge of their seats to listen to the rest of this podcast episode about music history. Sure thing. <laughs> you guys want to listen to another song? Yes. Let's play Easy Come, Easy Go, Side A, Track 4. And this was one that you selected, Ben. Do you want to preface it? What do you like about this track? I just really like... I. There's actually not a, a lot of tracks on this album, which is something we can talk about um, that feature the timbales. I feel like, you know, Coke was a per kind of person. He was, I don't know if he was a band leader exactly, but he seemed like he was someone who connected people with other people and that this project, yeah, is, is something where he's linking together a lot of, you know, his common interests and in seeing what other people can can create from his ideas. Uh, but there is actually a lot of uh, Timbalaya that I heard on this track. And it also has a very, very uh, sweet synth solo towards the end. Yeah. So, and, and it was, I, I wanted to uh, also kind of touch on at least, I think we're talking about two tracks that were written by, so his name is Herman Eberzich. Is that his name? He's actually not credited on the album at all as far as performance, uh, but he wrote four of the tracks on this album. Um, and we can talk more about him later. But yeah, just thought it would be good to take a look at another one of Herman's tracks. All right. Yeah, I suppose it should be mentioned that Coke Escovito is primarily a timbale player, but specialized in various forms of percussion. And this is a powerhouse track for Mr. Coke Escovito and his timbales. So again, we are listening to Easy Come, Easy Go, Side A, Track 4.
they did not hold back on the energy on that one. <laughs> that one was absolutely not out the gate. Yeah, this is the only real track where he seems to be kind of like patting himself on the back. Yeah, like a little. By the way, this this is what I. By can the way, do. I'm the percussionist here. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely a. Like you said, I, I guess I would call it a, a standout track, but I, I don't know if there's a weak one in the batch. Yeah, it's a it's a very solid album all the way through. There's a good variety on it, great playing, good songwriting, love the vocals, excellent album. You guys want to get into this bio, learn about the real Coke Escovito? Coke Escovito lived from April 30th, 1941 to July 13th, 1986. He was here for 45 years. He was born in L.A., grew up in the East Bay region with 11 siblings. Big family. Woo! Their father had hopped a train from Mexico when he was 12 years old and settled in America, started the family. But, you know, being transplants, they didn't have as much roots or support system. And I saw some, like theories that they became such a tight-knit family especially all the children many of them went into music and stuck together and collaborated and that was partly because having that really close family was very important to them from the beginning being immigrants in america so their father was a plumber a mariachi musician a big band singer and a semi-pro baseball player well versed yeah, well-versed, kind of a renaissance man, and someone that his kids looked up to, and you know he had a strong musical influence on his family. I saw that at least eight of the 12 children pursued music as a career at least one point in their lives. And the other four were baseball players? And the other four <laughs> just played music as a hobby. <laughs> one was a plumber. One was yeah, a plumber. One plumber. <laughs> Carry on the plumbing legacy of the Escovito family. Coke got the nickname from drinking Coca-Cola a lot as a child. It was his favorite drink. He was seen everywhere with it, and folks began calling him Little Coke as a child. And the name just stuck, and he owned it. You know, that's that's who he was. I don't think I've ever seen Jeremy Ruggles holding a Pepsi. I've, I've seen him holding plenty of fakies or <laughs> NA beers. Yeah. And, and bubbly water. And bubbly He's going to go back through all like social media photos and just like Photoshop a Pepsi in there. In every well, you'll, photo. you'll see photos of me with holding Laogan Ma all the time. So <laughs> Legit. Yeah, check anywhere. Well, I'm glad that it was the soft drink and not the drug. Yeah, unless he was like a five-year-old cocaine addict and the whole Coca-Cola thing is a lie. But, I mean, this is also close to the time when there literally was cocaine in Coke. Yeah, I mean, cocaine what started to become real popular in the music business in the late 70s. I mean, it was, I'm sure it was there in the late 60s, of course. But, I mean, it doesn't make, doesn't make a whole lot of sense that he would have <laughs> voluntarily taken that as a nickname. Yeah, just I don't... inviting a lot of visits by the police to your dressing room. Yeah, <laughs> in the in the mid to late forties, he was just a trailblazer in the field of cocaine. Have you guys heard about this stuff? It's great. I think it's going to be huge in a couple decades. Mm. <laughs> so, as we said, the whole Escovito family was musically inclined, and there was also a lot of pressure on the children to move out early and establish themselves on their own, as their parents were 
understandably struggling to provide for such a large family. Coke and his brother Pete were two of the eldest siblings and some of the first to head out and begin a career in music. Together they joined a band that eventually became the Escovito Brothers Band, which to my understanding was kind of a Latin-styled big band. And then we get to 1970 when things start to really take off. Coke joined Cal Jader's band at that point in 1970, someone who we've mentioned a handful of times, an artist that is very important in the world of Latin jazz. Coke can be heard on the 1971 albums Jader and Agua Dulce, which are both excellent and well worth picking up if you can find them. Also recorded in 1971, you can hear Coke doing session work on Moments by Boz Skaggs and Choice Quality Stuff by It's a Beautiful Day. Oh, nice. Yeah, so a very well-rounded musician like right from the start of his professional career and could work in a variety of mediums. And it was a big thing in session work to have an authentic percussionist to give you that kind of Latin flair to the music. It was in the 70s, that was all the rage. So despite all of this fame, his biggest break of 1971 was joining Santana along with his brother Pete, and you can hear them both on Santana 3, which came out in 1971. As we said, Coke co-wrote the biggest hit off the album, No One to Depend On. And as a side note, Santana 3 was Santana's last number one album until Supernatural in 1999. Uh-oh. He actually, Santana is the current world record holder for the longest break between number one albums. So that was 99? Yeah. 71 to 99. 28 years yeah do you guys happen to know who holds the record for the longest distance between number one singles oh it's probably share nope i'm gonna say roy orbison it's a good guess uh last i looked it up at least it's louis armstrong oh because it's the distance between hello dolly and the reissue of what a wonderful world when it like came out on a soundtrack yeah i'm guessing posthumously Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> kind of an unbeatable record, honestly. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's not like, you know, first to last number one singles. It's like a number one single, nothing, and then a number one. So it's like a, a unique <laughs> kind of record. Yeah. Let's go back to talking about Coke. So this brings us to 1972, which was another big year for Coke. He played on the Santana and Buddy Miles live album, which is excellent. And then him and his brother formed the legendary Latin fusion group Azteca, and they released their debut album on Columbia, getting the, you know, Santana recommendation for that signing. Azteca. Azteca. Excellent band. Uh, Not really dollar bin, but not unaffordable, and you might get lucky. Coke, that same year in 72, also did studio work on several excellent albums by Malo, who's another pioneering Latin fusion rock group. Cold Blood, who were kind of like the Chicago of the West Coast. Tim Davis, Louis Gasca, and he played on Beaver and Krause, All Good Men. Oh, previously featured on I'd Buy That for a Dollar. The most universally loved album we've ever talked about. (laughs) Facts. Facts. Wait, what are you guys talking about? What? Nothing. Jeremy's making a joke. <laughs> joke about his indifference on that album. 
Azteca released their second album in 1973 and then broke up soon after. Despite their acclaim and loyal fan base, there just wasn't enough success to sustain a 16-piece band. That's like having too many kids. Yeah, exactly. Like repeating their, their <laughs> you parents. You would have learned his lesson. Yeah. <laughs> after Azteca, Coke toured with Stevie Wonder right before signing to Mercury as a solo artist. And he released this week's featured album, his debut, Coke, in 1975. And I think that's interesting that he was working with Stevie Wonder right before this. I think listening to this album in that context, you can kind of see some of the influence on the songwriting and the synth playing and just the arrangement of the funk tracks on here. I mean, you can't help but be influenced by Stevie, especially if you were touring with him in 74. Like, man, incredible music. Yeah, yeah. I got some Stevie from this, and I also got some whatever MF Doom samples from this. <laughs> like a lot, a lot of this record yeah. sounded like ripe for the plucking from Mad Lib and MF Doom. Definitely. And I don't know if I don't know if there are any note if there are any noteworthy samples on it. I didn't really have a chance to look. There's not a ton of samples on this record, from what I remember, but his follow up album is most notable for having a drum sample on it that or a drum break on it that has been sampled many 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 times oh really like uh amen brother level <laughs> uh almost amen break say. i mean yeah <laughs> it, it's been used to the point where coke's second album which is called coming at ya is i don't think anybody would argue that it's a better album than this but it's worth at least five times as much as this record. Like we were just looking it up and it's 30 to $50 plus record, mostly just because there's a really notable drum break on it. You know, I actually sat down cause you, we had talked about this last, last week and listened to uh, coming at you earlier today. And, and I'm, I agree with your original sentiment sentiment, which is that this, his debut album is, is, is better. I mean, there's only three songs really on coming at you that I came away thinking like, I yes, I would really, I would play this over and over again. It's a lot smoother. It's, I don't know if, you know, the budget was you know clearly different and it's just more of a pop album uh, that the songs don't quite grab you as much. Yeah. Was my takeaway. And that's one thing that's really notable about this record, as we've mentioned many times, when you're dealing with dance music and disco adjacent music, a lot of times it's not a consistent album. A lot of my favorite disco adjacent records have two or three really good songs on it and then a lot of filler. So it's really nice when you can find a record in this world that is a, a great play all the way through. Heatwave comes to mind as a, a band we've talked about that made like excellent albums start to finish. And just because we're here in Philadelphia, but probably don't have a whole lot of uh, a whole lot to go off from this, I happened to look on setlist.fm, and it lists the first records that it has for Coke Escovito are at the Bijou Cafe in Philadelphia. He played apparently four nights leading into Valentine's Day in 1976. So presumably he was playing this this album here, uh, and that's the that's that's the first recorded the first record of him playing live, at least as far as setlist.fm is concerned. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know the Bijou Cafe, but we'll have to find out. It's probably an Apple store now. (laughs) (laughs) 
Coming at you was his second solo album. Disco Fantasy was his third and final solo album. Disco Fantasy is pretty good. It was kind of a critical and commercial failure, but I think it's still worth picking up and has some some great tracks on it. You know, musicians working in this field at this point got a lot of pushback for being too commercial or too smooth or too pop friendly and as we've talked about many times revisiting some of these records stuff that was hated on when it came out in the 70s for you know whatever reason is oftentimes pretty darn good when you take it out of that context and ignore the title disco fantasy yeah that too <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, the, the first two had modest chart success, and as we said, the thir- third one was considered a failure, and he was dropped from the label in 1977. He continued touring and doing session work, most notably playing on Herbie Hancock's Feats Don't Fail Me Now in 1979, and he toured a lot. From what I understand, he was searching for a new record contract, and it never came together, Frequently collaborated with family members like his brother Pete and his niece, Sheila E. Yeah, I did see that. I didn't realize that she's Sheila Escovito. Yeah, yep. that's what the E stands for. I left her off my list of percussionists. <laughs> I would have counted Sheila. That would, that would have been like the closest I would have counted. Because <laughs> she did plenty of uh, percussion solos, even like with Prince and everything. It was like part of the thing. She'd walk out on stage and do the timbales and other stuff. Yeah, that's why I know of Sheila E., I think, is the Prince connection. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Sheila E., or Sheila Escovito, is Pete's daughter and Coke's niece. And I've seen Alejandro Escovedo in Pittsburgh. He's the he's like roots rock, at least as far as that my remember the show. It was over a decade ago, but so I've actually yeah seen him perform in concert before. He rocks as you'd expect. Yeah, we'll get a little bit more into some of the extended family and where you might have heard of them. But first, we're gonna play another song. We're going to listen to Why Can't We Be Lovers. This is side A, track two. And I believe this is the one we wanted to hear towards the end on, right? Because there's a longer intro and it takes a while to even get to the Yeah, chorus. the so chorus gonna... comes in late on yeah. this. And the chorus is just... Mm. So good. It's <laughs> really pushes the song right on over the edge. So we're going to fade in maybe halfway through the intro and get you that chorus. Here we go.
I noticed that so Harvey Mason uh, is the drummer on four of these uh, four tracks from this album, including what we just heard. Why can't we be lovers? Um, interestingly, and why can't we lo- we be lovers is also a cover. So this is a Dozier Holland track uh, originally issued in 1972. The original is obviously very soulful, kind of swinging. This version is has a little more polish and. I don't know. There, he was obviously such a great arranger. Um, all the covers that are on this album are better done in Coke Escovito's hands. I think. Wasn't Harvey Mason the drummer for the Risque Foreplay, the band with Bob James? Uh, Harvey Mason is like one of the ultimate studio drummers. He's been on like an absurd amount of excellent jazz and funk records. Okay. But I don't know. I don't know if he was in that band. It's possible. He played with everybody, but he was yeah, a huge session player in the seventies. Yes. Yeah, he was. I, I, I looked it up. He was in foreplay with Bob James was in that group, right? That sounds right. But I guess I, 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 th- <laughs> I, I figured you'd done the deep dive on foreplay, Sean. <laughs> you found another hole in my research here (laughs) yeah yeah he was harvey mason was also on the first track the no one to depend on and i think that is all we hear from him as far as songs we're listening to tonight correct and uh, harvey mason had some records under his own name that are really really good and easy to find in the dollar bin and have been on my list of episodes to do for a long time so we will hear more about harvey mason in the future guaranteed well do we have any more about coke yeah we got a little more about coke just want to kind of talk about his legacy a little bit coke was considered to be a major innovator on the timbale specifically and was key and helping to evolve the Latin percussion style of earlier influences like Tito Puente, who, by the way, wrote the original Oye Como Va, which was covered by Santana and was one of his big hits. Coke was a guy who was able to kind of bridge the gap along with other percussionists and Latin percussionists of bringing these traditional Latin rhythms and influences and applying them to rock music and jazz and pop and all over the recorded music field of the 70s in America. Santana's drummer, Michael Shreve, has credited Coke with being a major influence on him and helping him incorporate more Latin percussion styles and time signatures into his drumming and giving Santana more of an authentic sound as a result. Yeah, and Michael Shreve is the drummer in the Woodstock performance of Soul Sacrifice that everyone's seen. So you he he's a very accomplished drummer, Prior to that, prior to Coke's tutelage, but he, it's, yeah, it sounds like he brought even more to Michael Shreve's repertoire, teaching him some things. As we mentioned before, Coke has this big family that are all musicians. So I wanted to mention a couple other notable members of the family. Two of his younger brothers were actually in some pretty influential early West Coast punk bands, believe it or not. Javier younger brother was in a band called the zeros that formed in 1976 and alejandro was in a band called the nuns which formed in 1977 those sound like punk bands from the 70s they are punk bands they're they are acclaimed punk bands considered to be two of the earliest west coast 
punk groups and like a big influence on that part of the scene, interestingly enough. I suppose I can see how punk could connect to the... No, no, I can't, but that's cool. <laughs> that just shows how big his family was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. you have to you have to do something that your brother is or sister is already not doing. Yeah, rebel. Like, yeah, you can't follow in these footsteps, so go a different... Go your own way. And be a plumber. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the players on this record. A lot of the main musicians on here were actually kind of unknowns and part of Coke's regular band at this point. On the back of the record, he bills them as Coke, Escovito, and Vida, or Life. So that is Pete Risso on drums, Mark Phillips on bass, Joe Rubino on guitar, Frank Mercurio on keyboards, and SX-10. Most of those people don't have a lot of credits. Some of them played on other Coke records as well. And then for the studio players, we mentioned Harvey Mason as the celebrity guest drummer on four tracks. And then we have two of, I would say, the most common backup vocalists to find from this era, Julia and Maxine Waters, part of the Waters family, who are, Mm -hmm. you know, first call backup singers during this time. Yep. Yeah. Maxine was on Leon Ware's debut. Yes. I think there's a couple players that played with uh, Leon Ware. There's mm-hmm. some other associations there. Leon Ware is an excellent 70s soul singer. If you're unfamiliar, dig in. Yeah, and I believe we talked about Maxine Waters and the Waters just a little bit on the Hamilton, Joe Frank, and Reynolds episode. I think that was an early appearance of hers. Nice. For the lead vocals, we have two siblings, Linda and Calvin Tillery. Calvin sang on an ultra rare funk record also in 1975 called honor thy father by marvin holmes and justice really cool music i was unfamiliar before this but definitely check that one out and you know you'll probably never find an original copy but (laughs) it's on youtube you know you can still hear it calvin later sang and played with bill summers and summers heat in the early 80s one of my favorite jazz funk artists some excellent records there and then linda who does the most lead vocals on this record sang for the late 60s oakland psych band the loading zone and i checked out a little bit of their stuff before this too it's really good she's an amazing singer and she was very young in that group nice she later went on to become a pioneer of the women's music movement her second solo album came out on olivia records Mm. and she actually produced three of the first eight olivia releases Yeah, I looked at the credits for the Chris Williamson album that we did that was on Olivia Records, and she wasn't on that album. Okay, yeah, I didn't think to look that one up, so. Yeah, I'm I'm curious of the the records that she produced, because I listened to a little bit of her Olivia Records release, and it's like a funk album. I was kind of surprised it doesn't have the folky elements that you would expect from Olivia. I've got to find that one now. It was really good. Yeah, I thought it, I saw that there was that connection, so I looked into it just a little bit. I thought that was cool. Mm-hmm. She also sang a little bit of vocals on Santana 3, which is most likely where she would have met Coke and why she is singing on this record with him. This album was also produced and mixed by Patrick Gleason. Coke is also listed as engineer, mixer, and executive producer, so he was very hands-on and all of it but the the producer and engineer in the house with them was a guy named patrick gleason who was also notable as a synthesizer pioneer 
He said he went out and bought a Moog the first time he heard Switched On Bach. Oh, yeah. The the, uh, influential synthesizer album. Wendy Carlos. Wendy Carlos, yes. Wendy Carlos was a big influence on him, and he decided to jump in on the synthesizer game early. And as a result, in the early 70s, he played synth with Herbie Hancock. So this would have been like pre- thrust and headhunters when herbie was just starting to dip into synthesizer experimentation patrick was one of the guys helping him get into that and then in 1974 he played synth on charles Ireland's leaving this planet a record that we mentioned on the charles Ireland episode and then just three years after doing this record with coke he recorded and helped brian eno produce devo are we not men we are devo oh wow he also uh, founded a, a recording studio called Different Fur, which I don't remember if this album was recorded in any at at that studio, but I know the subsequent Coming At You and Disco Fantasy records were recorded at Patrick Gleason's studio. Nice. Or portions of them anyway. Well, that's about all my notes in case anybody wants to ask me if I have any recommended similar albums. <laughs> hey, Sean. Jeremy, do you have any plans next weekend? Next weekend? I was thinking about maybe podcasting a little bit. Do you think before then you could recommend us some similar albums? Yeah, I could probably even do that right now if you're ready. Yeah, why not? All right, cool. Well, uh, the first one, not a technically a dollar bin record, probably more like a $20 record, but I have seen it in dollar bins. This is an intermediate dollar bin record. Willie Bobo, hell of an act to follow from 1978. Willie was another prominent Latin percussionist who was highly in demand as a session player in other people's records and had some excellent records as a leader as well. Second recommendation, another prominent figure in Latin music, Ray Barreto. His, a lot of his records are really hard to find, and his earlier, more salsa stuff is incredible. But he also was doing some kind of fusion stuff in the 70s that's a little more overlooked and a little cheaper. One highly worth seeking out is a record called Eye of the Beholder from 1977. And my last recommendation is an episode that we've done before. We talk about him a lot. I feel like he's kind of... a uh, Maybe a cornerstone of this kind of music. Norman Connors, You Are My Starship, 1976. There's a couple songs on this record specifically that just feel like they could have been on that Norman Connors record as well. They were. Yeah. I think Harvey Mason played on that one too, if I'm remembering right. So lots of connections. And then Ben, you had one recommendation as well? Yeah. Uh, the, the, well, the first album... Uh, that came out uh, under the Salsa Orchestra name, which was the same, uh, the record was also named. So, you know, kind of uh, the the crossover, the crossing point for disco and funk music and really, you know, kind of like an indication of where that label was going. Uh, it actually has a track called Love Letters, which is not the same Smokey Robinson love letters cover that we ha- have on Coke Escovito's debut. But I thought that would be an interesting one. And it it's certainly a dollar bin record. Yeah. And that's leaning definitely a lot harder in the disco 
scene. I would say this record is disco adjacent or disco right. influenced. That's but the, definitely true. The Sal Soul stuff is like fully disco, but very Latin influenced most of the time too. There's a strong Latin influence on a lot of disco related music. And from what I understand, there was a, you know, a lot of Latin people involved in the scene, both as DJs, musicians, and dancers. You know, part of the big thing with early disco music was that it was a safe space for a lot of marginalized communities that couldn't go to regular clubs. Awesome. Well, Ben, while you're here, is there anything you want to mention about yourself and what you do? Got any plugs? Plugs. Got any social media handles? Got any music online? Yes. Got any gigs coming up? What's Absolutely. I am sound in between on all of the social media arena. I'm, uh, I met Sean uh, originally because we are both uh, resident DJs at Philadelphia's famous The Trestle Inn, where the best of uh, vinyl and go-go kind of mix, and also whiskey, of course. So, yeah, I play there, I play there regularly. Um, I also have an abiding interest in fine wine. I'm a sommelier of sorts. Uh, but not at a restaurant. I work uh, for a fine wine auction house. So any any listeners who are interested in learning more about the world of fine wine can can find me and we can sip. <laughs> I thought that was just an oddity added to your fake title, but that's real. <laughs> well, I wanted it to be a lead-in, and I said it so that I wouldn't re- forget to talk about it. <laughs> Clever. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you, Ben. And and we just want to take a moment to thank our listeners, everyone who signed up for the Patreon during our Patreon push throughout the month of February. Your gifts for signing up in that month, or if you were already signed up prior to that, that will be coming in the month of May. Got to wait just a couple months and it'll be coming right to you so you can become. It'll be coming at your highest form. Here you can become your highest form of self with your I'd buy that for a dollar swag. So thanks again. And yeah, well, what are we going to get out of here on? What's the last song? We're going out on maybe my favorite song on the record. That's a really tough call to make, but this is an excellent track. We're going to hear Make It Sweet, Side B, Track 4. This is a good one. I, I was... I was almost going to jokingly ask you to rank the tracks in order right now, here right now, <laughs> but I'm sure our listeners would love that content. That would be a fun game. Uh, number one, let's see, that would be Smooth by Santana featuring yes. Thomas of Matchbox 20. <laughs> I um, hope that makes the cut. Yeah. <laughs> right answer. This is this last uh, Make It Sweet is another Herman Urbich track of nice. the four that he contributed to the album. Herman's Hermits. No, no, we already did that. that. Basically. (laughs) Well, very cool. This has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Thank you for listening. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. And I'm Ben Johnson.